This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. More seniors and people on social assistance in Ontario are being moved from original brand name drugs for conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease to less expensive biosimilar drugs. What are biosimilars and what are the concerns around the switch? Libby was joined by a panel of experts recently for answers to those questions. Dr. Kashif Perzada is an emergency physician in Toronto and co-founder of Critical Drugs Coalition. And Dean Miller is a pharmacist and president and CEO at Whole Health Pharmacy Partners. In the grand scheme of, of medications out there, it's, it's relatively a new phenomenon, but not really all that new because, I mean, some of these have been around for 20 years, but certainly I think 95% of all new drug research money is going to, this, to, to these type of drugs, biologics, right? So, so they're quite simply, you know, these, these are all sort of, they come from a, a living source. It could be human, it could be bacteria, like uh, like Botox or something like that is is you know comes from bacteria, um, you know. So, but uh, but the commonality around them they're all very very expensive, um, and quite likely if you've ever gone to a pharmacy and presented a prescription for one of these, the pharmacist would probably respond either what is this or wow this is very expensive and I doubt your drug plan covers it. So so <laughs> I'll I'll now kind <laughs> of defer to the our physician on to maybe uh, expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the difference is, you know, you take your aspirin, um, you take your blood pressure drugs. These are like small molecules, easy to make in a big factory. Um, They're almost, if you get a generic aspirin or Bayer aspirin, it's pretty much, it's exactly the same molecule. Um, These, uh, these therapies are proteins. They're grown in, you know, in vats. They're fermented in vats or other systems. They're much more expensive to make. They're large molecules and they're not um, completely the same. That's why they call them biosimilars. Um, they're not completely the same because you know each is slightly man- manufactured slightly differently, and it's much much more expensive. I've seen you know my patients will sometimes have to try different ones that work differently and different brand names. So you have in patients who have conditions that need these uh, uh, drugs, they need to go and try out many different ones, or they develop resistance to some and need to try others. Okay, now now I'm a little confused. So uh, biologics are this type of drug, and I thought biosimilars were sort of the generic version of biologics. Am I wrong? Well, I think, no, I don't think you're wrong, Libby. Like, you know, because I think many people sort of in the industry have started to describe them as the new generics of biologic uh, biologic drugs. However, I mean um, there is a difference because, as you know, as we've kind of said, you know, these all kind of have a different response. So if the three of us all took the same drug, our response is going to be quite different uh, to those. So 
um, you know, Health Canada used to say that these were not interchangeable. You know, it's only recently where, and I think a study just came out last week, actually, that said, look, we're feeling pretty comfortable that, you know, that these are interchangeable now. And I think a lot of that was driven by some of the, you know, drug plan decisions first in Alberta and B.C., where, you know, they've kind of said, hey, you know what, these are equivalent and we'll pay for them. And now that's what's happening here in Ontario as well. We know that these drugs are for inflammatory bowel disease and I think diabetes. What are some of the other conditions that... um, Rheumatoid arthritis, it's a type of arthritis, not the kind that you get from wear and tear in your knees or from old age, but your body attacks your joints um, all over your body. Um, That's that's a major condition as well. Um, Psoriasis... uh, psoriatic arthritis, things that can form plaques on your skin. There's many, many conditions where the body just isn't nice to you and you have to take these special protein therapies to calm it down. Mm -hmm. I think adding to that, uh, Libby, uh, you know, it's now sort of entered the ophthalmic space. Uh, Oncology, uh, you know, impacts a lot of people, you know, uh, all of those areas. So it's pretty broad. Hmm. Oncology as well. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's miraculous therapies, I have to say. Like, um, I have uh, um, you know, an uncle who lived an extra two years, God bless him, um, with a newly discovered therapy that's a biologic drug like this. Libby's conversation with pharmacist Dean Miller, president and CEO at Whole Health Pharmacy Partners, and Dr. Kashif Perzada, emergency physician in Toronto and co-founder of Critical Drugs Coalition. I'm Jane Brown, and this is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. It turns out most Canadians, 50-plus, have a positive outlook on growing older in this country, especially those who are healthy. And it stands to reason those who have health and or financial challenges are more concerned about what the future holds. Dr. Samir Sinha is Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto. He spoke with Libby just before Christmas about the results of a new National Institute on Aging survey. I mean, it's the holiday season and a, a challenging year with some some good news. And, and I think that the nice news as we get together is, is thinking about how many of us as we age are are, are, are aging well, um, and especially some of our older people. They, they're some of our most socially connected um, and well-supported individuals in our country, which is terrific. But it it also makes us think about those who um, who may be struggling and, and areas that we can do better in as well. In terms of struggling, is it is it people with uh, health or mental health issues and financial issues? That's exactly it. I mean, it's what is what comes to mind is that in order to age well, we know that we have to think about our financial security overall. And those who have lower incomes, those who may not have saved uh, as well as they could have, uh, are are ones who are less likely going to have those options to be able to stay healthy and independent and 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 live uh, the rest of their years in the way they want to. So we know that we have to think about the importance of supporting people uh, to be able to to have a secure uh, income and, and, and financial security in their later years, but also helping people stay healthy and well, because we know that if we are struggling with more chronic diseases or other issues, uh, that can make it hard for us to, again, stay healthy um, and be able to enjoy uh, living a healthy
healthy and active life for as long as possible. So that's, it reminds us kind of that these are the folks who are struggling and it makes sense why they would, but also reminding ourselves that we can prevent some of these challenges from happening in the first place. One of the interesting findings was that people over 80 uh, had seemed to have more well-being than a younger cohort of 50 to 79. Now, I know that in actuarial terms, right, uh, it's often the case that the longer you live, the longer you're expected to live. So if you've avoided the main things that kill people, like cancer and heart attacks, uh, then you're you're likely to live a long time. Is that what that finding is about, really? Uh, the findings about a few different things. So one is definitely uh, we know that as we age, for those who might have uh, issues such as uh, lung or or heart issues, uh, those are things that can that can that can claim us at an earlier age. And so people who are aging in later in life, for example, are, are folks who may have escaped some of those issues. But we know that uh, as we get older, when we're living in our 80s or 90s, uh, there's a good likelihood that we might be living with them as well so it's it's not just that issue I think what the, I think what we were finding with this with this piece was more about how uh, after you've lived a long life uh, and you've kind of maybe raised a family uh, you've had a career you've had those things um, you kind of are more confident about who you are you know what you like you know what you don't uh, you you don't have to impress anybody at work anymore um, you uh, and you can be more secure about who you are and who you you want to be. And I think that's where we're seeing that folks may not have big social networks. They may have outlived some family members or friends, but they're making sure that the networks they do have are quality networks and that they're staying uh, and they're very happy with the social connections they do have. At the same time, we found that uh, many older adults, about 40% of older Canadians, are at risk of social isolation. And so it reminds us that when, as our networks start to diminish as we get older, it's important to keep renewing them and growing them because if we lose some of those few people who are really important in our lives, it can put us at risk socially, but it also can make it hard for us to stay healthy and independent as well. Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at Mount Sinai and the University Health Network Hospitals in Toronto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break... A look back at Volodymyr Zelensky's inspirational speech to the U.S. Congress. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a truly inspirational moment as Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of the U.S. Congress just before the Christmas holidays. But will his speech do the job for which it was intended to shore up backing among Republicans for ongoing support of Ukraine as Ukrainians defend themselves against Vladimir Putin's Russian forces? On the day after Zelensky's powerful speech, Libby was joined by Larry Haas, a former White House communications strategist who is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and a public affairs consultant. Well, the speech and Zelensky in general, right from the start, has been nothing short of Churchillian. 
I mean, this is the uh, uh, the only land war we have had in Europe since World War II. And uh, Vladimir Putin is clearly trying to upset all of the norms of the international system and resurrect as much of the Soviet, the previous Soviet empire, as he possibly can. And this is one of those real inflection moments in history. And so far, so good. Uh, The Ukrainians have fought bravely, and the United States has led a coalition of the West that's been rock solid. And I think you saw that reflected last night. It was partly to thank uh, President Biden and the American people, and more broadly the West, and partly to, as you say in your introduction, uh, you know, uh, convince people who are maybe tiring, some fence-sitters, certainly the isolationist um, sentiments uh, within the House Republican caucus that are significant. Uh, I don't know that they're in the majority, but they're significant. So last night's speech had a purpose to it, but Zelensky is really inspiring. There is a certain element uh, that is hardcore isolationist that he simply isn't going to convince. But that's not really the issue. It's really those who are being pulled in different directions. The politics are uh, pulling them toward isolationism because of the base of the Republican support, the very activist base. But yet they know in their hearts that there's something more important here. Uh, and they really need kind of a public reason to, you know, fly, you know, straight into the headwinds and take courageous votes and continue to provide uh, the aid. Moving right along uh, in our last, the Trump tax returns, any fallout from that? Yes, and of all the things that we have learned, I will say the contents of his tax returns are not surprising. Uh, We know he paid very little tax. We've already seen reports of that. So we're not surprised by that. We know that he has taken questionable deductions. We're not surprised by that. We know that he is not the businessman that he proclaims to be because he has great business losses and his income is actually from investment income. But I think what we have seen, and it's really the heart of the matter going forward, is why did the IRS defy its own policy and not audit Trump's tax returns for the first two years, and why did they begin to only audit presidential tax returns on the very day that the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Richard Neal, asked for Trump's tax returns? So there are a lot of questions. Was the IRS under political pressure? Did they, you know, did they fear retribution? Did they think with somebody like Donald Trump it just wasn't worth the effort? Um, they defied their own policy well-established policy. So I think that's where the long-term fallout is going to be. Why did the IRS act this way? What was the White House doing at the time? Was there political pressure uh, and all the rest? I, I think that's that's the issue going forward rather than the contents of Donald Trump's tax refer, uh, returns, because I don't think they have shown anything that we haven't already known. Larry Haas, a former White House communications strategist who is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and a public affairs consultant. He was in conversation with Libby the morning after Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to U.S. Congress.
This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It is the season of the tridemic. COVID-19, RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, and influenza. How are we managing as a society against these three respiratory viruses? And is this year worse than last because there are three viruses rather than just one circulating? While filling in for Libya on Wednesday, I was joined by two experts who provided some answers for us, as well as insight into why parents are not vaccinating their children against diseases that had been basically wiped out before COVID. Dr. Alon Vaisman is an epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. And Dr. Tim Sly is also an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. I started the conversation by asking Dr. Sly how the respiratory virus scene came to widen from just COVID to now COVID, RSV, and the flu. Well, the big increase in influenza started earlier and climbed more steeply than we'd seen it for many years, even before the pandemic came along. Uh, It has sort of peaked a little bit in Canada and has started to go down a little bit, but don't don't, uh, count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, That could well go back up again. At the moment, it's it's still outside the the normal range of uh, of such a thing. Influenza B, we've hardly seen uh, much of that at all. And respiratory syncytial virus uh, started early again this year and climbed uh, fairly fairly, uh, higher than it would normally be expected to do, but it's still leveled off a little bit now. Yeah, that's exactly true. So earlier in the year, and that's peaking around the end of November, there was high numbers of RSV and flu cases among children. But actually across Canada, those numbers have dropped. So the positivity of the testing and the number of cases have actually dropped since early December. And we anticipated that we might see a peak in the adult population around this time or pretty soon. But for unclear reasons, we haven't seen that yet, or it may not actually arrive. So our flu and RSV numbers in the hospital actually remain quite stable around what you might expect in previous seasons, maybe slightly lower. Usually flu and RSV uh, peak around the first week of January. So in the adult population, we may end up seeing the same thing fairly soon. But fortunately, we haven't seen the same surge in the adult side as we have on the pediatric side. How big of a part have uh, the anti-COVID vaxxers been, Dr. Sly, in discouraging parents from getting the vaccines that children have been getting for decades? Well, well, of course, with the uh, social media, we, we don't really know where all of these messages are coming from necessarily. People are flooded with this, and if they're a little hesitant or not sure or haven't read much about it, they can be easily persuaded by these very loud voices uh, crying, uh, watch out, hesitation. Uh, and, of course, public health voice is very subdued and calm and mature, but it doesn't get heard as much. We did see a survey recently in, I think it was, it was the U.S., Ohio area that showed that an increase of between 16 to about 28 percent of people now, parents, are now saying that they should be able to decide whether to vaccinate or not for MMR, right? That's gone up to one in four. Now, that's that's very alarming. That is alarming. Yeah, so that's mumps, measles, and rubella. Exactly. And in the same state, Ohio is saying they now have a law that prohibits the quarantining of a person who's been exposed to measles that hasn't actually been symptomatic. Now, measles is, 
is probably still the most transmissible virus that we know of. And so they have a law that prohibits the, va the quarantining of people who probably are able to spread it around. This is a, a backward, this is a dangerous backward step almost to the 16th century. How about this question, Dr. Sly? Are we getting closer to the official end of the COVID pandemic? Oh, we are sliding down toward that, yes, there's no question. And, and w with this hybrid immunity we've built up with both uh, natural infection and the vaccination, we're, we're looking much, much better than we were a year ago, but we've got to continue that on. I saw a great poster from UK just a week ago, and it showed on a big fence, it showed, uh, think of it like your, 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 like your cell phone battery. You know, immediately after vaccination or a few weeks after, you're fully topped up and it slowly wanes. So you need to get it topped up again between three and six months. Six months, ideally, but if you're in real threat, about, think about after three months. Okay. And Dr. Vaisman, uh, what are your thoughts as we approach the three-year anniversary of COVID? Yeah, I, I agree that um, the important thing for people to focus on is the fact that the mortality rate has dramatically dropped compared to three years ago. COVID is a very different disease than it was before. It still means we need to do things to protect ourselves, including vaccination and masking where it's appropriate to do so. But it is important if you understand that the threat of COVID is very, very different than it was when it began in March. Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Tim Sly, also an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back. With Jane Fight Brown. Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Shelley phoned from Thornhill to ask a question of our epidemiologists about whether she should get a sixth COVID shot or a second bivalent booster. My question might have been answered, but I've had all five shots. So I've had the bivalent four and five, and I may have an opportunity in January to get the bivalent one shot. Should I consider getting that since I heard you say that the bivalent one is rising? Our experts suggested Shelley and others who've had five shots, including one bivalent, would be best to wait six months before getting a second bivalent booster, but a minimum of three months is also an option. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Craig in Etobicoke, who phoned during our segment on Vision Zero and pedestrian safety. Hey, Jane, great show. I just wanted to say uh, the point that was brought up about, you know, pedestrians have to take responsibility. I really appreciate that as an instructor. Uh, I think drivers are demonized too much, and uh, I'm glad that point was brought up because if you got good pedestrians and good drivers you get good if you have bad pedestrians and bad drivers you get bad so i appreciate the fact that 
you set that assurance, have to take responsibility. That's great. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment... Email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.